Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Offsite Podcast, where we chat all things construction and technology. My name's Carlos Cavallo. And I'm Jason Lanzini. How are you doing, Carlos? Pretty good, thanks. How are you doing? Back from New Zealand? Yeah, good. Back from New Zealand. Come back to uh, rumors abound of a HS2 phase two cancellation. Yeah, it's pretty full on at the moment. It's interesting. You kind of get it. When they say costs are spiraling, that's a bit of an understatement. So I read an article earlier and the original sort of price of the entire scheme, including phase two to Manchester in like back in like 2010 was 30 billion. We've now spent 22 billion and we've only really done like what less than a third of phase one. Scraps and surface. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2010, it was 30 billion for everything. Then in 2019, it was 45 billion for London to Birmingham. And now it's what 120, 130 billion. I don't think anyone can blame inflation for that. They just had no idea. Part of me thinks is you're letting these major contracts go and you're not really coordinating. If you really thought of it as one project, it must be easier to manage milestones and relationships and like collaboratively go towards this end game. But it's so fast, like a delay on one of these sections, the other contractors then gonna like utilize that delay to their advantage maybe. And then everyone's just sort of increasing their time and cost allowances as they go. So as a client, I don't know how you manage that. So what, when you said the cost estimate of, uh, of 20 something billion, what year was that? 2010. So 2010, if we go back to 2010 era, well, I don't think this chart that I'm looking at, uh, goes back that far, but we're talking like guilt, um, UK, like government treasury, like the guilt price, 10 year guilt price is like. I don't know, low single digits. As far as back as this chart that I've got in front of me goes like two, three percent. Like that's over four percent now. So even if there's like a almost let's just say conservatively one half, two times price escalation in terms of the, the cost of the debt and then the actual cost of the project going up five times, that's like a ten times escalation in the the overall like interest cost of that project. It's um yeah, it's a lot of money. It's like a, it's like a house renovation project that you go to start that suddenly costs 10 times more. You're going to probably yeah. uh, forgo the extra bedroom and bathroom, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're going to cut out the, the posh tiles anyway. Yeah. Inflation from 2010 is um, 47%. So to go from, yeah, 30 billion to 100 or something, like it's mismanagement. It's, but yeah, it's not, it's not just the price escalation. It's like the change in the, the change in the price of servicing the debt in, the, in combination with it. It's yeah. massive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, not good, but fingers crossed. Uh, it looks like a lot of, uh, chief executives of major contractors are writing to the government. It kind of kicks against all the plans to bring jobs to the economy. All, all the sort of usual arguments that government are sort of fighting for. They're then stripping away the biggest project in the country, which is providing tens of thousands of jobs. So who knows? You just have to sit back and watch. You can't pay for it. You can't pay for it. I think that's the end of the, if, if you can't pay for it, the bottom line is you, you can't pay for it. So I don't know what the, the real state is. And I hope it goes ahead, obviously, it's a cool project, but um, yep. yeah, absolutely. You can, only, you can only spend what you've got. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. That's probably way more interesting than our usual terrible jokes. Um, so today we're going to have a discussion on planning, um, similar theme to last week, but today we're going to focus on supply chain to bring sort of the 
broader context to this. Every project has a master schedule. It's owned by planners and it plans jobs from beginning to end, set of activities, milestones, and, and everything else that goes into that. Subcontractors also produce their own master schedules. So on major jobs, they will also have probably a P6 or S to file, which shows their program from beginning to end. And there's a routine each month that the planners from the subcontractor are submitting to the planners from the main contractor. And in theory, they're incorporating that update expertise and everything else into their own schedule. So the two should be aligned. Concurrent to the master schedule process, we've got short-term plans. You've got engineers for the contractor, building, owning, maintaining short-term plans. And then you usually, I say usually, because maybe for a real small subcontractor, they won't have a requirement to do a short-term plan, but they'll have their own version. And in these contracts, it will probably just say, you will submit a four week look ahead in whatever format you like. That's a typical makeup of a project. But the question I want to discuss today is, should the subcontractors be working in the same short-term plan as the contractor staff? So instead of this double handling of here's a look ahead and the engineer might take the look ahead and incorporate some of that into their own look ahead, which then is part of the project look ahead. Should the subbies and the contractor staff just be working together, the subbies own the tasks and the contractor staff are effectively monitoring those activities. So to kick up, Jason, what do you think? Um, I think that there's a, like, that's a definitely an interesting question. I have like a follow-on question to you, but let me, let me actually respond to yours first. I, I think that in most projects, the, uh, it all comes down to relationship between the the general contractor or the main contractor and the prime contractor, whatever country you're in and the subcontractors. And generally you could bucket those relationships or that subcontractor into, uh, I like to think of it as one of two categories, really like, um, like a plan maker and uh, a plan taker on a lot of projects you might have, if we take like a typical infrastructure project, let's say you've got, um, let's say, uh, a HS2. A section of HS2 might have a large piling contract that's subcontracted. That piling contractor probably has this relationship where they build a plan that says, here's how we're going to deliver the piling scope as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible. And more than likely, they are a plan maker where they're kind of the, the, the prime or head contractor's goal is to give them the things that they need, make sure they're complying with health, health safety, quality, et cetera, but basically get out of their way and let them do it as, as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Whereas on the same project later on in the scope, you might have, um, I don't know, like a steel fixing or a form work or an FRP type subby who is, uh, on, I guess, a more intricate scope, maybe doing this slab over here, then doing this pile cap over here, then sort of going where the work is available, where the work fronts are available. <laughs> And they are probably more a plan taker. And so depending on what that relationship is, will dictate how the, I guess, the short-term planning would happen in, in, in my experience. And it's the latter type that they're the ones that are going to be kind of more integrated into the short-term planning process of the, of the main contractor. If you were the engineer managing the example of the piling contractor, are you taking that plan and just this is the plan or you sort of burning time, putting it into this sort of format and the schedule that the main contractor uses across the board. 
Usually the, well, not consistently, but many of the plant maker type relationships are really at the very early at the start or right at the end of a project, like a piling contractor or I don't know, maybe a, a big sit out contract or something. It, it's, well, what am I saying? I think I'm, what I'm saying is it does depend on the interfaces with other scope happening at the time. So like if I've got a piling contractor on site and at that time we're maybe doing some bulk gas work and some early symbols work or something, there's probably less interfaces that they have to be aware of, in which case I probably don't need to double handle their planning as much. And yeah. as long as there's some level of like coordination meeting that they're attending, it it's probably easier to, to manage. If the plan maker is at a different stage of the project where there is a lot more interface, that's when you, you know, if we think about like the shit out stage of a station or something, you've got a couple of different plan makers on the, on the site at the same time, maybe like a big electrical and maybe a big sit out subby. That's when the main contractor has got to be really active in managing their planned work and the short-term plan and logistically and who can go where and understand obligations and what's critical for the, for the project. If I'm the engineer, I'm not double handling that team's plan because it's still busy work. I'm going to have them plan in a format and an instruction that is consistent between those subcontractors so that we can just have the conversation that we need to have that says, okay, room 2B, we're doing this and that, you know, that conversation. Yeah. The sort of bottom-up planning approach with subcontract, your major subcontractors together makes a lot of sense because ultimately it's just encouraging transparency and collaboration because everyone is aware of each other's programs and you're all leading towards that sort of same milestone or um, the, the, end game. Yeah. The, the other thing to be super, the other thing to be aware of, Carlos, is like a lot of times in some situations, the plans that your subcontractors send are well thought through and represent reality of what they're going to do. But I would say again, in my experience, probably that's in the minority. Like a lot of the, in in the same way that like a contract is, if I'm an engineer on a project and I look at the master and schedule, I'm like, okay, that's a nice idea of how we'll build it, but it misses a whole bunch of the constraints of what is actually happening on site. Yeah. A lot of the plans submitted by subcontractors they're doing it on often because it's a contractual requirement of the contractor and they might hire a planning consultant to do the plan for them just to tick the box that they've complied with the contract yeah that results in you know those plans being this you know shit in shit out type of thing yeah, yeah. Uh, and so i wouldn't be spending a huge amount of time trying to be like oh what do they mean by this this here then that yeah, it's kind of yeah, busy work also. I wouldn't be trying to assess it like a client assesses a Cross 32 submission, like fine two comb, from a, more of a contractual point of view rather than a, is this achievable kind of thing? The niche that kind of, it confuses me isn't the word, but surprises me is a project that goes top down planning. So they're reporting data from their master schedule, but they distribute those tasks to users who are subcontractors. And if, if you're the subcontractor and you're being given a program from the main contractors program, and that program is back to back to your master schedule that you've submitted, it's a really weird place to be, isn't it? Because you're breaking down a schedule that you didn't build or create or, or own, and you're adding detail with, to it. Are you surprised that that is the makeup of some projects? 
it, it, it probably goes back to, in some situations, yes, but it would probably go back to, again, the relationship between the contractor and the subcontractor. Because if the relationship is, let's say, contractually flexible, where it's like cost reimbursable or something, it's almost, it's almost irrelevant what's in that main schedule and the goal is to, to help the contractor deliver the work that they want delivered. If I was working, if I was the subcontractor on that, like say a hard dollar scope, I would really want to plan to my, I'd want to execute to my, I'd like, and then mostly they do want to execute to their schedule. But then it comes down to sometimes like the contract, like projects can set themselves up, like head contractors can set themselves up for an unsuccessful outcome by doing literally like being incompatible with like the schedule and the contract, like letting a scope that so they want the subcontractor to be a plan maker and say, we want your expertise, give us the most efficient way to do this. And at the same time, jamming a whole bunch of obligations in their contract and says, you must coordinate and, you know, you know, the classic pauses that people like you, Carlos, the comedy spans and stuff, <laughs> bang people around the head with, <laughs> you, you must yeah, yeah. coordinate with other contracts, you know, that type. Those shitty lines that you whip out at a meeting and everyone just looks at you like, <laughs> yeah yeah it's um there's definitely this separation between contractual schedules and like programs for delivery so that's definitely it's it's an odd place to be i'm definitely all for your major subcontractors planning with the team and not just once a week here's a program and then you go away for one or two days and try and work out is it achievable does it align with our milestones and our broader plan and lots of back and forth incorporating them fully into the process and just being transparent around anything and not trying to hide information because a short-term plan shouldn't be a opportunity for like a QS to throw an early warning. Like that's not what it's for. It's, this is a, the latest update on what we plan to do. And the, the contractual schedule can stick, can be that mechanism for extension of time and all the other things that come along with the contractual schedule. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because so many different projects do it in different ways. And the, but the subcontractors, the same way that like many contractors can use the short-term plan to their advantage, the subcontractors can as well. Um, so I was on a, I was at a project recently uh, here in Australia and they were talking about their use of the short-term plan to drive action from the, from the client and doing things like, you know, projects that use the plan to their advantage plan really well in the short term. They flag what the requirements are, the things that they need from whether it be the client or the head contractor, what do I need in order to deliver this work? Uh, and then, you know, just as the client or the head contractor likes to hold the person doing the plan to account, they, you can use it in reverse and the subcontractor or the contractor can say, you know, I needed this approval. I needed this design back by these dates. You didn't get it. Like it's a two-way street and the short-term plan is really powerful at driving accountability in two directions and so i think that's uh it's not just something you know lots of people view it as i'm going to get a plan and then the client or the head contractor just kind of smash me around the head with it but it's if yeah. you know if, if planning is done well in that way like let's say it's like an offensive as well as defensive weapon yeah yeah if or, it's, or probably if it's, a better term is to say it's like a useful tool rather than like a a, a chore yeah it should be a useful uh tool to improve outcomes because like there shouldn't be massive surprises because everyone was part of the discussion throughout the course of the project. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Cool. And, and so much of construction is like plagued and is the things that really frustrate construction projects are at those margins of things that I'm responsible for versus things you're responsible for. And I can't go ahead because you haven't given it to me. And that like really, um, that short-term planning process that it makes it really clear, okay, you're doing this, I'm doing this, I need this by this day. Uh, is a really powerful way to to work through those those issues and drive better collaboration. But like you said before, setting the ground rules really early on on a project that says we're doing this process to to try and jointly deliver the project as efficiently as possible, not as a way to have an argument and to send letters to each other and and to 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 be another mechanism for for contractual dispute. Yeah, absolutely. Right, you had a question for me. Did I? That was that was temporary. That's well beyond the that's well beyond the uh, statute of limitations of my memory. Um, I thought I'd prompt that because you forgot. No, there, there there was one which is um, it goes kind of uh, back to a similar relationship between short the subcontractors plan and the the main contractors plan, but in relation to the the master schedule, do you think it's valuable well not do you think it's valuable but like what is your view on this like workflow where subcontractors submit you know clause 32 in the uk submit that like monthly schedule update at their master schedule to the head contractor they review it they accept it they reject it then they are doing the same thing with the with the client and in a lot of cases never really change because the main contractor doesn't want to keep changing the structure of the master schedule because it kind of makes it harder to establish claims and it messes it if they bring detail from the subcontractor into the master schedule what is the point of the subcontractor doing that work for other than the fact that there is an nec or a, a contract that requires it? like is it busy work or is it valuable obviously with my qs hats on it it's it's needed because otherwise how do you access extensions of time and everything else because it's not just, oh, your program's gone out. I'm going to pay your prelims for another week because they could be on fixed costs. They could be on a target contract. So you need a benchmark. It's definitely busy time. And obviously you're always playing the game with the above of you never want to kick out time for anything that doesn't have an instruction. And for anything that does have an instruction, you want to kick it out as far as possible. You're, as a main contractor, you're in this middle ground of balancing the two to make sure that you end up in a favorable position. Like, for example, I would, and I'm not a planner and a planner would probably disagree with me, but I don't think I'd want P6 schedule from a supply chain member, unless they seriously had like some of these contracts on Crossrail, for example, were like hundred billion, that kind of makes sense. You just want to know their plan, any deviation from milestones and like where they're moving to different phases of the project. Cause you can, like, that's the useful information that you need to know from their schedule. You don't need to know what they're doing every shift. If you're a planner trying to assess program submission. That's the information that sits in the short-term plans for the team actually delivering the job can have an understanding of what their plan is each day. So there's definitely a, a point in scale where I think like you need that extra level of details, probably the wrong word, but you need a P6 with Esther. But yeah, I think it's harsh when you demand a proper program submission from like a hoarding contractor, because all they're doing is going and paying consultants to plug in what they had in Excel or MSP into P6 yeah, for the sake of a submission. And so much of their delay is like access to areas and stuff. Like 
I just think that the way that I've seen it happen in the UK is some of the most inefficient use of time where we have, we have this process where the schedule gets reviewed between the client and the contractor. Then it happens, you know, 10 times, 20 times, 50 times with each of the subcontractors because we've applied the same contracting model and the amount of contracts needing, the amount of schedules needing review and being stupidly rejected because of dumb technicalities and how, you know, negative lag or, you know, those things. They just don't like the outcome. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's just the whole thing feels like a giant waste of time. And there's probably just a set of dates, like access. Yeah, It it does depend on the size of the subcontract, but generally I think it's like from what I had seen and what I've seen there, especially in the UK, I find most of it to be a waste of time. Anyway, that's a positive note to end on. Yeah. (laughs) Rockets. That's all we have time for today. As always, thank you very much for listening.